Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles to two places this morning, put your finger at Ezekiel chapter 15, and we will be preaching John 15, verses 1 through 8. So Ezekiel 15, which is a short chapter, and then we will be preaching John 15, 1 through 8. Disciples are identified by fruit production. Disciples slash Christians are identified by fruit production. As we begin, there's a lady in 1822, from 1822 to 1913. Her name, Allison Cunningham. Allison Cunningham became the nurse to the only child and future novelist, Robert Louis Stevenson. He was the author of Treasure Island. He also authored Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. She became his nurse in 1852. That is, two years after his birth. His parents and larger family were nominal Presbyterians, but she was a confessional Christian. She was knowledgeable of the shorter catechism and the teaching of the leaders of the disruption. Her nickname, or what she was called, was Kumi, C-U-M-M-Y. Kumi, as she was known, was a true Christian. Stevenson loved her and listened eagerly to her as she regularly read and explained Scripture to him, and she also taught him Pilgrim's Progress. She told him the stories of the Covenanters, He also learned the shorter catechism both from his mother and from Kumi. She loved Robert Murray McShane, and she taught the boy the stories about McShane. She cared for him tenderly in his sicknesses. She took down his own stories that he dictated to her. He looked back fondly at such times in his childhood. He wrote a work called The Land of the Counterpane in a Child's Garden of Verses. And in that book, he wrote an extensive poem of dedication to her. When a child, Robert Louis Stevenson entered fully into her system of faith and priorities. He then valued all the joy and all the peace that is brought by a a profession of a saving faith in Christ. Let that sink in and we shall revisit it later. This morning, disciples are identified by fruit production. Ezekiel chapter 15 tells us this about the vine with a list of rhetorical questions of which I will let you know the answer mostly is no to every one of the questions. And so in Ezekiel 15, the prophet says this, quote, And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood? The vine branch that is among the trees of the forest. Is wood taken from it to make anything? Do do people take a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. 
when the fire has burned both ends of it and the middle of it is charred, is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred? Can it ever be used for anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them. And you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord God. Now to John 15, where we'll find this morning's message. Israel was known as the true vine, or known as the vine that God had planted. You'll find that in Psalm 80 and other places. you find that description in Ezekiel 15. And so in the midst of the privileged people, the Jewish nation, who had the very oracles of God, the very chosen people of God, the vine of God, if you will, Jesus stands up in the midst of a Jewish congregation and says, I am the true vine. I'm the true vine. And my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he cuts off. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch, that's you, cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and they're thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so become, or so prove, to be my disciples." A disciple abides in the true vine and produces fruit unto the glory of the Father. 
But pseudo-disciples abandon the true vine, are cut off, wither, are gathered, and thrown into the fire where they are burned. Farming, if you will. John 15, verses 1 and 2. It is an agricultural explanation that Jesus gives, and so let us at least understand all the parties that are involved. Number one is the Father. The Father here in our text is specifically known to be the vine dresser. He's the one who owns the farm. He's the one who does the work on the farm. He's the one who bears responsibility for the fruit production of the farm. In other words, if this farm does not produce fruit, then he has failed the farming industry. So if there's branches not producing fruit, they bring a negative connotation upon the owner of the farm. And the father is the farmer. And it's a very simple illustration. It has great application. It's very simple as we understand it. And as we look at this text, this is what we know, is that the farmer, God the Father, expects fruit from every branch that is in the vine. That's what he expects. By the way, it's the only thing he expects. And by the way, it's the only use of the branch. The branch has no other use. Nobody takes a branch off a vine to build a house with. It's not good for that. It has no strength to it. The only purpose of the branch is fruit production. Now, the, farm, the farmer, the father, if you will, in this farm of vines and branches, does two things in this farm does two things in regards to the vine. Only two. They're simple to remember. One of those is he cuts off. And another is he prunes. That's the two functions of this farmer. So you have a branch. You have this vine. You have all these branches coming off of this vine. And there's this branch that's bare. There's no leaf. There's no fruit. And it continues to be that way for a period of time. That branch becomes counterproductive to the branches that are bearing a leaf and a fruit. And so they become an inhibitor to the rest of the branches. And so the good farmer that he is, he cuts it off in order that it doesn't drain energy from fruit-producing branches. Then you have these other branches that do produce fruit, but the farmer looks at them and he says, you know, I believe more fruit can come from this branch if he wasn't preoccupied with this. And so he prunes and cuts that out of our life. And he cuts this out of our life and cuts that out of our life. Why is he cutting these things? Sometimes when they cut, it hurts us a bit. And we're like, man, I didn't want to lose that. And he cuts it off, and we lose it. We say, "What, God, why is this happening? Where you can produce more fruit. Because these other things are just distractions for you, and, and they're preventing you from producing the amount of fruit that you ought to be producing. How can God take this away from me? He only wants fruit. 
And so if he takes it away, it must not be helping you to bear more fruit. Jesus here in this passage, that was the Father, and we have Jesus in this passage. He has the opening line. It is the seventh I am statement and the final I am statement. And he concludes the seven I am statements with I am the true vine. The word true is attached, it's an adjective attached to several other key things. I'm not going to preach those, but I do want to remind you of those. And they are these. Jesus says he's the true vine in our passage. That means every other vine is false. There's only one true vine. You say, well, I don't know if I believe that or not. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not in one sense. It is what Jesus is claiming. That's what he's claiming. He's the true vine. But also, in other passages, John 1, 9, he is the true light. There is no true light apart from Christ. And then in John 6, 32, he's the true bread. There's no other true bread that will satisfy the human soul apart from Christ. Then you have to reach over to the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, he is the true tent, the true tabernacle, which would take you back to John chapter 2. You remember that famous statement, you tear this temple down and in three days I'll raise it up. He was signifying his death and his burial on the third day he's resurrected. He's the true temple of God. All these people waiting on a temple to be rebuilt. All these people waiting on Israel to do something. Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the true vine. Israel has failed in every regard. The only way Israel's going to go to heaven is if they're in this vine. If they're in this temple, because there is no other. So you have the Father, you have Jesus, and you have branches. Disciples. This is in verses 2, 4, 5, and 6. All through this passage, you have these disciples. Branches. As I said already, I say once again to make sure that we get it. The only useful purpose of the branch is to produce fruit. It's the only purpose that we exist for, to produce fruit for the glory of God. Now, D.A. Carson, I don't want to overquote him, but this is just, I can't word it this good. But D.A. Carson says it this way. The transparent purpose of the verse is to insist that there are no true Christians without some measure of fruit. Fruitfulness is an infallible mark of true Christianity. The alternative is dead wood. The alternative is dead wood. So you, you hear the message. You get the sense of the meaning of the text. If your life has no fruit production, then the inevitability of the result is you're just dead wood hanging out around the vine, but you're not in it. You want a graphic explanation of that. You don't have to look any further than Judas. Saw three resurrections. Saw 5,000 people fed with just a few loaves of bread and being around all of that. But he had no fruit production. He was just dead wood. And when he walks out, it's not much longer that he commits suicide because he 
withered up and he was gathered and he was thrown into the fire. It becomes impossible to believe that a branch with no fruit will remain very long in association with this vine. If a branch with no fruit is allowed to stay on the vine, listen carefully, if a branch with no fruit gets to remain on this vine, the credentials of the vine dresser will be called into question. They come and they say, how do you let an unproductive branch stay on the vine? Do you not know how to take care of your vine? So his credentials become in question. It's very important. So, so God is not going to bear the blame of being a bad vine dresser. No fruit? I'll cut you off because I'm all about fruit production. Let me give you, there's a lot of these. I will not give you all of them because we do not have the time but in the New Testament, the New Testament clearly confirms that those who are associated with Christ, with the church, but if they're unable to persevere with fruit production, they, they don't give any evidence of the transforming life of Christ. They have never had the life-flowing nutrients of the vine flow through them. Unless you stay and remain, you've never had those life-flowing nutrients flowing through you. You've just been around the vine. Let me give you an example. Matthew 13. Let me say there's many of these. Let me just give you this one in length and the other two verses in short. Look in Matthew 13. You know the passage. You know it well. Matthew 13 and verse 18. He says, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That's what's sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. You see people like this, they come into the church, man, that's good, that's great, I love your sermon. They receive it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. And he endures for a season, for a while in the church, but then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, he immediately falls away. And for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one, he hears the word, but man, there's just so much going on in the world. And the, the deceitfulness of riches, they choke the word and it proves unfruitful, cut off. Now, as for what was sown on the good soil... This is the one who hears the word, understands the word. Indeed, he bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. But all true branches that are in the true vine bear fruit. 30, 60, or a hundredfold. Some bear more than others, but all true branches in the true vine produce fruit. You can see it in their life. You examine them over the course of the years and you say, there's fruit production in that person unless they're not in the vine. Now, another short verse you know, it's often quoted, we quote it again here, is 1 John 2.19. It says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, 
they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they're not all of us. There's this necessity of abiding in the vine until the end with fruit production to be Christian. And a verse that we don't quote very often in 2 John 1.9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. But whoever abides in the teaching has both Father and Son. If you want to put it in an allegorical way or illustrate it in a more contemporary context, I would word it maybe like this. The church is the farm. The Father owns the church. The Son is the source of all true spiritual fruit. The true branches are those who stay connected to the church and bear fruit unto the glory of God. You, you want a better example? Think about it this. Think about a vine growing on a fence row. It goes from fence post to fence post. It goes 50 yards, 50 feet, 100 feet down the deal. It just keeps growing. These vines do that. And you look on this vine that's 100 feet long, and it has one branch. No, it doesn't. There's not a vine 100 feet long with one branch. There's branches down the whole thing. There is no long-ranger Christianity. If you're in the vine, you're surrounded by branches. Branches that are producing fruit. Fruitless confessors are cut off by the Father. Fruit-bearing confessors are pruned for maximum fruit production. Now, verses 3 through 8. Fruit is the whole focus of the passage. In verse 3, purified. You look there in verse 3 of John 15. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Free from moral guilt. Free from sin. It's like he says in Titus, To the pure all things are pure. (laughs) To the defiled and unbelieving and nothing pure. Or in John 13, 10, Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed, one who's bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet. He's completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. That was back in John 13 when Judas was still in the room. He knew he was going to betray him, and that's why he said, Not all of you are clean. Eleven were clean. One was not clean. Get it in your head. Get the picture. The vine, the true vine is Jesus. Jesus is in the center of this room, and there's 12 men surrounding him, and 11 of them are clean, and one's not. And and then we discover who it is as we went through the passages, and now we're over here, and we only have the 11 left. The 12th one, Judas, he's already departed the room. He's already gone to figure out how he can sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And so he's speaking to the 11, and he says, you're already clean. By the word that I've spoken to you. The very words that Jesus has given to them are purifying them because they are true branches. Now, they don't grasp everything at this point, but that's Christianity. As things unfold and as the Spirit is poured out and as understanding is brought, these 11 never turn back. Ever. 
all the way through the rest of their life, even with all their fumblings and dumblings and goofing things that they do, when it comes time to be tested by fire, they stand. And they give their lives as martyrs, unwilling to deny the name of Christ, and they stand boldly all the way to their dying day. They've been purified by the Word of God. Jesus has spoken the Word. It's purified them. They are clean in the fact that they are justified before the God of heaven, and they give the rest of their lives to serve Him. Production, to bear fruit. It's a great word. To be productive, to produce. To, to produce fruit is the expectation of the vine dresser. But it's not just to produce fruit. Producing fruit is good, and that's the expectation, but he can't leave it at just simply producing fruit. That's, what is the implication here? You can't arrive at a status quo Christianity. I produce two grapes a year, and I just keep producing my two grapes a year. It almost sounds like the guy that buried his talent in the ground. No, 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 no. It's not just to bear fruit, but then he adds the adjective in, much fruit. I bear two fruits last year. I want to bear four fruits this year. I want to be increasing in fruit production because that's what disciples do. Here's the things that God used me to produce fruit from. How can I add more to that? How can I be more diverse in fruit production? So a great verse in John 12, just a few chapters back, we preached not long ago. He said, amen, amen, I say to you, Jesus speaking, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, if it dies, what? If I die to myself, if I die to my flesh and live for another, I produce much fruit. If I'm not producing fruit, perhaps it's because I haven't died to self. But if you die to self, it's like a seed planted in the ground. When it dies, a shoot will come up out of the ground. And you'll see, if you plant corn, you'll see these little green things coming up out of the ground all the way down the row for thousands of acres. All those seeds died. And that one little grain of corn sprouts up. And when it gets up, it makes a full ear of corn. Two ears per stalk. And it brings a bumper crop, 200-something bushels an acre. And the farmer's happy. It's about fruit, but it only happens if the seed dies. What's the position of the branch? What's the position? The word in our text is the word abide. Abide. One of the first Greek words I ever learned, and it wasn't even in Greek class, it's the word meno. It means to abide, means to remain under a load without seeking a way out from under it. Here I stand, so help me God. This is where I'm going to remain. I'm connected to this vine. I don't care what the rest of the world does. I'm standing here. Remain. Abide. I'm with Jesus if nobody else is. I'm staying with him if I'm the only one that's left. I'm hanging with Jesus. I'm abiding. Now, I suppose a word is important if it's used twice or if it's used three times, but our word abide here is used 11 times in 16 verses. 
John 15, 1 through 16, 11 times. Abide, 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 abide. We must remain in Christ. There will never be a time in your life that you will be safe to walk away and live Christianity on your own. Never. You know, when you're 60, 70, 80, 90, or 100, you live to 102 like my grandmother, you lay in the hospital bed and say, John Randall, I need somebody to take me to Sunday school. That's what she said to me at 102. I just got to be at Sunday school. I can't miss. She, she wants to be by the vine. That's what Christians do. They abide. Now, how are we to understand this abiding relationship? It says it very clearly in these verses to abide, but what is he saying? If we take it as conditional, conditional means what? If you remain in me, I will remain in you. That's conditional. If we take it as a comparison, it would be remain in me as I remain in you. But if we take it as a mutual imperative, a double command, if you will, it would be this. Let us both remain in each other. Let there be mutual indwelling. I am going to fulfill my society of the command, and I'm going to abide in you. Your responsibility, you must fulfill, is to abide in him. It's a mutual imperative that we are bound to stay in an abiding relationship with the true vine. The point? You say, what's the point? The point is this. No branch has life in itself. You can't live on your own. You can't have long-ranger Christianity and do your own thing. You and Jesus got your own thing going on. It doesn't work. You can't have life without the vine. So you must abide. Mutual abiding in verse 7 brings about fruitful prayers. If you look in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you ask whatever you wish, it'll be done for you. The most natural course of any true believer, because I abide in him, I have communion with him in prayer. Talk with the vine every day. I seek the vine every day. I ask the vine for help. I ask the vine for strength. I ask the vine for protection. I ask the vine for guidance. I ask the vine to give me understanding of his word. I ask the vine for discernment. It's it's just the natural course of a branch. I need every life-giving nutrient out of the vine I can have because without it, I can't live. It's a natural result. Being conformed to Christ by obeying Christ through communion with Christ will result in the confirmation by Christ. Mutual abiding is connected to and synonymous with His words abiding. The prayer of whatever you will becomes in harmony with what Jesus has said. Because as we abide in Him, we pray His will to be done because that's the will we want to be done. I sure don't want my will done. The truth of this passage negates the shallow, false teaching that a man can come to Christ at an early age and then separate from Christ for the rest of his life. 
Pray tell me from a passage like this how a man can claim to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ at the age of eight and then leave Christ for 40 years and die and he's supposed to go to heaven. And I read this text, I'm saying he withers up and he is gathered up and he's thrown into a fire because you can't have life apart from the vine. You can't leave at eight and come back at 80 and say that whole period that I was a Christian. You can't do it because you're cut off. There's no fruit. What's the purpose of fruit bearing? You say, all this fruit bearing, what's the purpose? It glorifies the Father. Look, I worked on a farm long enough when I was down in South Texas. I worked there for two years, 4,000 acres that we worked with corn and cotton and soybean. But I worked long enough to know this. I know that there were some years they would get in the combine to go down through there to get the corn, and they'd go all the way down, they'd go all the way back, and all the way down, and all the way back, and all the way down, and all the way back, and then they would unload. It was like... We sure spent a lot of fuel getting that little bit out. And then I saw years, you drive the combine halfway down through the corn and have to stop and back out because the hopper was already full. It was a lot of inconvenience to back all the way up and dump the hopper before you can get one cut through the thing. But everybody was happy. Why? Because just so much corn and so, so much produce, it just brought joy to the farmer. This is our text. The Father has joy when all the branches are producing fruit. It's like, it's a bumper crop this year. And the church ought to be leading in this fruit production. John 15, 8, where we're at. By, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so become or prove to be my disciples. Now, what type of fruit is to be produced? I may or may not do another whole sermon with this, but let me give you this because we need to at least know something about this fruit. The spiritual fruit of righteousness. Now, there's a lot of texts, and we don't have the time, but the fruit of righteousness runs rich through the New Testament. Righteous living before God. It, it affects what? Our desires, our attitudes, our dispositions, our words, and our works, all of those things are affected when we have this fruit of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness controls what I desire. It controls what I say, decisions that I make, things I involve myself in. When there's the fruit of righteousness, it takes over the whole of my life. That's a fruit. That's the fruit we ought to produce. We ought to be more and more righteous as time rolls on. You don't come to Christ and become more unregenerate. You don't come to Christ and become more wicked. Come to Christ and become more immoral. You come to Christ and you start producing the fruit of righteousness. Your desires change. Your thoughts change. Your, everything about you is affected because there's this life-going flow from the vine that is going through your veins. Or if you want it from the Apostle Paul, you know it well. We'll say it clearly. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy, it's peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's not even a law against any of those things. And those fruits should be increasing and increasing. 
is it not a sad testimony for people in the church to claim Christianity and be the most bitter person you've ever talked to that expresses no joy whatsoever? Something's wrong because if you're connected to this vine, the fruits of joy and patience and love, they keep increasing. There's hope for all of us. I mean, look at my life. I'm the most impatient person on the face of the earth, but I have more patience now than I did when I started. There's some improvement there. I'm I'm definitely not there, but if you'd have known me in 1986, you'd have shot me. These things grow as you're connected to the vine. Lastly, fruitless. This is another whole sermon in itself. I'm giving you the cliff note version this morning just to tie it all together. But fruitless. Verses 2, 4, and 6. What happens to the fruitless? Well, they're cut off. They're taken away. They're removed. Seized. Interesting lexicon, defini- lexicon, lexicon definition. To cut off by force, even by killing. Taken away. So cannot produce. In verse 4, fruitless. They can't produce. Two, two phrases in verse 4 and verse 5. They're not able and they're not able to do nothing. Not able to do anything. Without connection to the vine, there's an absolute impossibility of producing fruit that God will honor. You think about all the humanitarian things that are going on in the world, and all these good works that are being served everywhere. Unless they're flowing out of the vine, they've never produced one good fruit, even though they gave out 10 million meals. Because apart from the vine, there's no good work done. There's no fruit produced. Now consider, and I'll give you the cliff notes, consider the five things that result from not abiding in the vine. Here's what happens. Thrown out. Thrown out. Withered. Gathered. Thrown into. And burned. That's the five things. Thrown out, withered, gathered, thrown into, and burned. What are the number of people I've seen and that you've seen that have been associated with the vine, near the vine, look like branches throughout a period of time, a year, five years, four years, ten years, thirty years in some cases, around the vine, and then they step back. And you step away. And then a year later you see them. And then five years later you see them. And then you see their mug shot as they're being put into prison. You say, what happened? This person was here and they were around the vine. And I thought they were fruit bearers. And, and look, I, I, can't, I didn't even know this guy anymore. It's, do you see Judas hanging from the tree? He's got a rope around his neck. He was in prayer meeting with us. He saw three people raised from the dead. He saw 5,000 fed with a few loaves. He heard the best teaching that ever flowed through the lips of a man. And there he is hanging in a tree. Why? Because he went out. And it was night. Breaks my heart. 
fruitlessness not only threatens fire, but it robs God of the glory that is rightly His. Two-part conclusion. The psalmist says this, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nation and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and it filled the land. That's what happened to the nation of Israel, right? But then things went awry. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. And for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. He planted a vine. It spread, but it failed. And so he took the man at his right hand, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he planted him in the fullness of time. And he resurrected him from the dead. And he's the true vine. And everybody that would repent and be engrafted into this vine will produce fruit. You remember Alison Cunningham and her years with Robert Louis Stevenson at the beginning of the sermon. A whole lifetime in godly upbringing with godly parents and a godly nursemaid. Reading the Bible and Pilgrim's Progress and the Shorter Catechism and Robert Murray McShane. All of those things. He had all of that. And he said, when a child, he entered fully into her system of faith and priorities. He then valued all the joy, all the peace that is brought by a profession of saving faith in Christ. But... Alas, he defied all that loving example and instruction and rejected all she stood for, becoming an immoral bohemian in his lifestyle and then announcing to his family that he was now an atheist, which devastated his father. His mother considered that she had been a total failure as a parent. Privileges alone will not save. As we learn from the life of Judas in the New Testament, he heard the Sermon on the Mount, the parables of the prodigal son, the discourse of the upper room. He saw Christ heal the sick, still the storm, raise three people from the dead. He was the recipient of exquisite pastoral care from the good shepherd. All that did not keep him from betraying his Lord and committing suicide. The privileges of a godly home are not enough to save us. If you want to throw a rock real quick, just because you homeschool and you don't do anything with all these people in the public school does not guarantee your kids will ever see the gates of heaven. I say that to myself as well as I say it to you, because just changing the environment does not fix the heart. Our children cannot go to heaven on the strength of their early blessings and their parents' faith. They must, from their unbelief, they must turn from their unbelief and they must appropriate Christ as their Savior. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl in this room 
You cannot go to glory hanging out at the church or being raised by a godly grandmother, a godly grandfather, or a godly parent. Everybody in this room, the only way you'll ever enter into heaven is if you repent of your sin and you put your faith in the true vine, Jesus Christ, and you remain in Him until you die. Without Christ, you have no hope. But with Christ, you have everything you need to satisfy your soul. I implore you, to look to Christ. Father in heaven, I love you and I thank you so much for sending Christ. For without him, how lost I would be. Thank you for a good Savior. Thank you for the true vine. Thank you for the life-giving flow he gives us every day. And I pray for every person in this room that if they're not in you for real, that they would truly repent and believe you. And Lord, for the rest of us who truly are Christians, we're branches that are tied to the right vine. Lord, help us to be better fruit producers in the days to come. We pray these things by your Spirit, in Christ's name.